Highliners! We grok you, man! We're ready to talk about Moon as a Harsh Mistress. We've got our AI security system plugged in and we're ready to go. And I've got two guests here to talk about Robert Heinlein. This is our third and final Highliners. Here in the studio today is Mark Conlin. Mark is a, was a independent journalist, still independent journalist. Um, and a writer and commentator on all kinds of things and longtime activist here in San Diego. Mark, anything else you want to say about yourself? Uh, I think that's, uh, that's pretty much it, uh, for now. <laughs> and joining us via the interwebs from Chicago, Illinois is my old pal F and Dave Woken. <laughs> Dave Wogan is a librarian and has a history background. You want to give your uh, background here, Dave? Yeah, yeah sure. So, um, well, I'm the Latin American and Caribbean Studies librarian at the uh, University of Chicago. But um, basically, I'm a librarian, but I have a background where uh, I was studying P for a PhD in Latin American history and was actually working on a dissertation about anarchist uh, revolutionaries in Argentina in the early 20th century. And for a variety of uh, reasons, quit that and went and got my MLIS, uh, went to library school. But uh, interesting, I've been on for a book about revolution. Since I studied revolutionaries, I've also been, um, had some background myself as a labor organizer and was actually curator on a union archive in Oregon at my previous job. So for a farm worker union archive. So I have thoughts about social movements. We'll say that. Yeah, we will definitely get there. Um but uh, for now, we're just going to introduce a little bit about Robert Heinlein. If you're one of the Cliff Notes listeners who didn't actually read the book, don't actually know who Robert Heinlein is, didn't listen to the previous episodes about Robert Heinlein, Heinlein uh, was most, he was already, this was his fourth Hugo Award, fourth and final Hugo Award. So he, his most popular novel to this point was Stranger in a Strange Land, which we, Mark and I covered in a previous episode, and we also covered one of his other Hugo winners, Starship Troopers, with the main cast of Dickheads, Larry and Anthony were on that one. How did everyone first discover Heinlein? Is this your first time reading, or have you read Heinlein before, Mark? Um, I think mostly um, until I plowed through Stranger in a Strange Land for this podcast, uh, my knowledge of Heinlein was mostly his short stories and his what would now be called young adult novels. And uh, I was reminded that uh, of Dorothy Parker's comment in the 1920s, Ernest Hemingway is America's greatest living short story writer. He is not America's greatest living novelist. And I think Heinlein worked better in the short story field where he could just make his point and nail it instead of going on and on and on. Right. Well, it's the same thing with Stephen King is best in the novella format, really, you know, in general. Uh, I say this as someone who just finished reading a Stephen King novel. Um, Dave, did, have you read Heinlein before, or was this your first time? Uh, first time with a full novel, actually. I always feel like a big poser about that. But um, I'd read some of his short stories back when I was younger. And, you know, they were clever sort of sci-fi thought experiments is what I remember thinking of them. And, you know, I was aware of his reputation, in particular, Stranger in a Strange Land, of course, is incredibly famous. And then... Um, Love the movie adaptation of Starship Troopers, but um, was told by many people the novel is quite different. And what I like about the movie is not in evidence in the novel at all. So I'd never bothered with it. <laughs> uh, you made a good choice, sir. Um, yeah, uh, my experience with Heinlein 
was that I read all the major Heinleins during probably my formative years of reading science fiction between when I was a junior in high school and probably second or first or second year of college. So I think I read, I know I read Stranger in a Strange Land. I know I, I, I don't think I read this one though. I don't, I think this is the first time I ever read this one. I, I had be- believed that I had read it before when I opened it up. And then when I got about 20 pages in, I was like, nope, I don't think I've read this one before. Uh, but I have read, especially, uh, I was a big fan of Job and, uh, Stranger in Strange Land, I liked back in the day more than I did this recent time. All right, moving on. Uh, this book was nominated for the Hugo in 1967. It was released, um, it was originally serialized in Worlds of If, which was a magazine at the time. Um, this was a time when novel, when science fiction novels still were getting serialized a lot of the time. So, December of 1965 through April of 1966, Worlds of If was the magazine that serialized this novel. And But, curiously, it was released as a hardcover the same year, uh, or 1966, which made it eligible for the Hugo in 1967. Um, he did not comment on this book much, except for to say that he considered it a part of his Libertarian Trilogy, which was Stranger in a Strange Land, Moon is a Heart's Mistress, and I'm not sure what the third one was, but uh, he just said, the quote that I saw just said, Moon is a Heart's Mistress is a part of my Libertarian Trilogy. So I'm assuming the other, or one of them is Stranger in a Strange Land, I'm not sure what the third one is. Uh, but he referred to it as Libertarian in that sense. Uh, but there's not much, uh, there wasn't many quotes that I could find out there about the writing of this. So it was nominated in 1967 with Toastmaster Harlan Ellison at the New York, at New York Con. So the Hugos were in New York that year. And the other nominees were Babel 17 by Samuel R. Delaney, Too Many Magicians by Randall Garrett, Flowers for Algeron by Daniel Keyes, Witches of Karis by James H. Schmitz, Day of the Minotaur by Thomas Burnett Swan. Now, I have read, including Moose's Heart's Mistress now, I have read three of these. I have also read Flowers for Algeron and uh, Babel 17 by Samuel Delaney. And I would say both those books are better than this one. I would definitely um, agree on Flowers for Algernon. That was a book that uh, made a real impression on me when I was growing up. And what seems like a protest vote, the Nebula Awards, which were only two years old at this point, which was the Fan Award, because the Hugos is kind of like the Industry Award, and then the fans would vote on the Nebula at the time. The Nebula Award was a tie between Flowers for Algernon and Battles 17. And I do not believe, I do believe that Moon's Heart's Mistress was nominated, but those two books were co-winners of the Nebula that year. Um, yeah, Flowers for Algeron is incredible. It's an incredible novel. It holds up really well. Uh, it's definitely one people should read. And, um, Babel 17 by Samuel Delaney is also incredible. If you're not familiar, if people, listeners are not familiar with Samuel Delaney, he's an amazing science fiction writer who was around that time, and he's still 
uh, rocking and rolling. Um, it's also, uh, for those of you dickheads out there, serious dickheads, there's a lot in common between some of the moon details with um, the moon aspects of time on a joint by Phil K. Dick. Um, the lunatics in that one, and the loonies in this one, and a lot of the moon revolutions. Because there was a revolution on the moon in Time Out of Joint as well. So I feel like PKD was had kind of done this almost a decade earlier, <laughs> and a lot of the similar things. Although Heinlein and uh, Dick were not really pals, they didn't communicate, they weren't um, kind of contemporaries, and you can kind of see why. So... That's it on the uh, on the awards that year and the history. So let's we can get into the general bits of the story. And so the story itself is it takes place on the moon, and we have um, we have a supercomputer that's kind of running the show there called the Holmes Four, and it's named after Holmes uh, Sherlock Holmes' brother, uh, Minecraft or Minecraft. Minecraft. Right, um, and goes by Mike. And some of our other major characters are uh, Wyoming, not Professor Bernardo de La Paz, who is definitely Heinlein's stand-in. Who every time that the professor talks, it's basically Heinlein, you know, <laughs> talking the whole time. And uh, this book is essentially about a moon colony that is producing food for Earth in a post. It's a post-nuclear Earth. We know that North America has become one big country, right? Don't know a ton about... We don't know... I, 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 there is good world building about what's going on on Earth, but it's not it's super clear. I think most of the world building is really contained to uh, the moon. And some of the things that are good world building are also frustrating reading because... Um, he try even though the book is written in English, he does a lot of Russianisms, where uh, a lot of the words that don't exist in Russian are just left out. Um, I don't know how you guys found that for reading, but I had to go back and read a lot of sentences. He tries leave out a lot of prepositions, <laughs> articles, uh, mm -hmm. pronouns, with result <laughs> that reading book can be <laughs> rather annoying. Yeah. I, you know, I actually kind of I was okay with that. I, I was really frustrated by some of the world building, honestly, because I thought some of it he handled really well and almost elegantly, and was really interesting. And then, in the same, almost the same breath, could just be incredibly clunky and clumsy and ham-fisted. Um, and it was often about the same things, but I won't even go into the specific ones I'm thinking of. But honestly, the language I thought he handled relatively well. I mean, it's supposed to be the Moon's colony is this multinational. Essentially, it's a it's a prison colony. So it's folks from all over the world are sent into exile there. Right, so 19th century Australia, yeah. basically. And so the idea is that they all have this pigeon they've developed, where it's got elements of many different languages. But you're right; it's mostly English and Russian, mm -hmm. which we've seen in science fiction uh, done really well uh, recently. I don't know if anybody is watching The Expanse, which just moved from mm -hmm. Sci-Fi Channel to to Amazon. But in that show, the um, asteroid belt miners, the belters, have a really cool dialect. And Jared Harris plays one of the belters, and it just nails it. Like, it has a really cool, like, it's annoying as shit when they first start talking that way, but you get really used to it over time. So, And so, yeah, it does give it this kind of international feel, and 
yes, it seems like what we're doing here is is basing the moon colony off of Australia. But for all intents and purposes, I think the story could have been set on an island, and you could have told the same story. There's a, a line on... Um, my edition is the uh, first paperback edition from Putnam, and on page 25 of that edition, there's a line where he says, where uh, there's a, a rally happening, and the speaker says, Comrades, hearken to me. Every load you ship to Terra condemns your grandchildren to slow death. The miracle of photosynthesis, the plant and animal cycle, is a closed cycle. You have opened it, and your lifeblood runs down to Terra. You don't need higher prices. One cannot eat money. What you need, what you all need, is an end to this loss. Embargo, utter and absolute. Luna must be self-sufficient. And so... I think that he's really setting up the idea that this, you know, that they're producing all this for, for Earth, and it's doing a good job of setting up why the revolution is festering or why it's coming, right? Um, I don't know if you guys have any thoughts on, on, on that, um, that aspect of the story, how it worked for you, didn't work for you, but. Um, could definitely see why would they, they would be revolting. That it's, it starts out as one of these things where you could see it either as a left wing or a right wing movement. Uh, as I said earlier, the opening rally sequence seems like, you know, a 1930s movie depiction of a union organizer. Uh, you know, Wyoming not, you know, going up in front of these people and, you know, trying to challenge them to action in the same way. We must march. We must stand shoulder to shoulder. And Manny, the, uh, uh, central protagonist is, you know, takes her aside after the meeting is broken up and says, you know, this is nonsense. You know, you, you, you know, you can't, you can't make a revolution by directly confronting the establishment. You have to do it in the back door. And fortunately, he's finding a back door via the fact that he has figured out a way to talk directly to the computer that is running everything on Mars. <laughs> on behalf of. Oh, on the moon. On, on the moon. On, on, on the moon, on behalf of the colonizers back on Earth, who right. are expecting the moon to produce all this stuff. And, uh, he basically gets the computer to quietly switch sides. Right. And, and making the computer one of the, uh, one of the organizing cells of the, of the revolution. And, and it was interesting that, that right from the beginning, he has these characters talking about revolutionary cells because, well, at the same time that there's things that are just really heavy handed in this book, the fact that Luna declares independence on July 4th, um, you know, and. Well, and it's heavily implied that they basically just paraphrase the U.S. Declaration of Independence. Right. And, um, but at the same time, put together terrorist cells or, you know, or not terrorist cells, resistance cells. Um, you know, which that stuff was really interesting. I mean, that, I, I suppose that's something I can get into later. But um, I found that was one of those areas I felt they handled both very well and incredibly poorly at the same time. Yep, um, go into that. Yeah, I mean, well, you know, because it's clear. So basically, like Heinlein, in the big picture, like this is an account of a revolution that is fundamentally technocratic, um, in the sense that he's really concerned with the the mechanics of organizing an underground movement 
the um, tactics and strategy of the war that they fight, and to some extent the economics policy that they follow. Um, but as far as, I mean, so the kind of stuff I studied when I was studying revolutionaries was much more about how you actually have the discontent and get people together and organize. And he spends very little on that. And it's almost just magical. It's just sort of like, oh, and then we recruited this person and this person and this person, and they found this person. And there's just almost nothing. And everyone just is, you know, even Manny, he's incredibly um, skeptical of the idea of having a revolution against the earth. And he just sort of flips and it's never understood why he just sort of, he decides to do it and then he's on board. And, uh, um, all of that, I found very easy. Yeah. Yeah. Very easy and a little frustrating. It really did feel like, you know, I don't know, guy who thinks he's very smart playing with his sort of war game toys. Like this is how I would strategize the revolution, but without a real understanding of, you know, building, building a sense of solidarity, building power, building an actual social movement that people would be on board with. Um, and so, yeah, it, it, it read like somebody who writes sci-fi because they think the mechanical stuff is cool and not very good at actually thinking about how people work. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Which, you know, uh, you know, keep in mind. Oh, also, it helps that they have a, the most powerful AI in the known universe on their side, you know, so he can just hand wave off all kinds of difficult stuff by just saying, well, Mike says our probabilities are this. Yeah. <laughs> Right. Very convenient revolutionary. Um, yeah, well, it's funny, too, because uh, the the thing about that, well, I will say that the AI was interesting to me in the sense that I do think that that was pretty forward thinking of Heinlein, to have the idea that they kind of the, the warden overseeing this penal colony would be uh, a massive computer, although he got wrong the fact that you know, it's like sci-fi writers, they get some things right, they get some things wrong. Like, I think it's cool that he had an AI doing this, but the fact that it's like a building-sized computer instead of like, you know, the, the tech down to something small is kind of funny and interesting. But yeah, I, I, I... Nobody in the 60s thought computers would get that much smaller. Yeah, true. People were thinking, people were thinking of huge mainframes and maybe mm-hmm. small terminals that, you know, uh, connected to them. But, you know, you would still be feeding, you know, the information you wanted the computer to process into this big thing that took up several rooms. I think what Dave is saying is is true, is that we did not get a lot of detail. We we get this one speech basically saying, hey, you're feeding Earth. You're not. You We need to be self-sufficient. But there isn't a lot of time like dealt with the day to day life of how people are affected by this. And that could almost be a separate novel. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. in in the sense of, we definitely could stand to have more details about how Wyoming and the professor and all these characters are are affected by this. You know, by by or, or just give them an actual problem. You know, give them internal lives. You know, why are these people on board? What is it about this that appeals? I mean, everybody's very minimally sketched out. Mm-hmm. Um. And to the extent they encounter any opposition, and admittedly, maybe you could argue this is Manny's authorial voice in a sense. If, I don't know if Heinlein was that sophisticated to actually be thinking about it this way, but anyone who opposes his little central cell and their plan for the revolution is just transparently an idiot, you know. Like, and their and their their arguments and their ideas are summarily dealt with and rarely even stated. It's just sort of like ah, oh, they're just yammerers or they don't know what they're talking about, you know. And he just 
brushes it aside and moves on. Well, that's kind of like the uh, Leninist ideology anyway of, you know, uh, Marx had said that, uh, you know, the workers would, uh, (laughs) you know, you know, in the process of making the revolution, the workers would develop the skills needed to run the society after they succeeded. Lenin said, no, um, the farthest the workers are going to get on their own is organizing trade unions. We need a bureaucratic uh, elite on the top to tell uh, the workers how to run the society after we win the revolution. And that's what the vanguard party will be. And we will run by democratic centralism. There's, you know, there's definitely, you know, an element of both, uh, of both communism and fascism in Heinlein's politics here of, uh, well, you know, the masses are too dumb, too stupid to run society the way we know it needs to be run. Oh, we'll get to rational, uh, anarchism here soon. So, so we will, so we will, Set up a Congress that will actually do nothing and we will make sure that it does nothing. But these people can pretend that they have a democratic system while, you know, that the handful of us at the top yeah. are really running things. I, I think you could argue, and I think plausibly that, you know, and I'm not even, I have, I don't come out of a Leninist tradition at all and have big problems with it. But on, on the other hand, um, Lenin probably had a friendlier attitude towards democracy than Heinlein, I would argue. <laughs> <laughs> Um, <laughs> wow, talk about left-handed compliments. <laughs> uh, ooh, that might be in the show notes. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, well, there are some good things about this leader society. There does seem to be racial integration. Uh, but I could go into that, by the way. But Yeah, we, we will get to that at some point. Um, there... There's, it's still cringy. There's still lots of cringy stuff there, especially, and we will definitely talk about the gender roles in this book because that's okay. some, yeah, that is some of the. That's a fascinating mess. That is a fascinating mess. But the next thing on my notes is the, um, is the rational anarchism, uh, which for context, um, page 64 of my edition is where we first hear about that, uh, but professor, what are your political beliefs? I'm a rational anarchist. I don't know that brand. Anarchist individualist, anarchist communist, Christian anarchist, philosophical anarchist, syndicalist, libertarian. Those I know. But what's this? I can get, uh, what's this Randite? I can get along with Randite. It's a rational anarchist believes the concepts such as state and society and government have no existence save as physically exemplified in acts of self-responsible individuals. He believes it is impossible to shift blame, share blame, distribute blame, as blame, guilt, and responsibility are matters taking place inside human beings singly and nowhere else. Being rational, he knows that not all individuals hold his evaluations, so he tries to live perfectly in an imperfect world. blah de blah de blah um, <laughs> That's kind of the first time rational anarchism gets mentioned, but I can tell you that I've listened to a few libertarian podcasts talking about this book, and the, the idea of rational anarchism is something that they love about this book. And they and I listened and read a few commentaries where people specifically said that the rational anarchism is something they're, they're is their favorite part of this book. Um, 
that part gave me a headache um, because it's just basically libertarianism, right? Yeah, and that part gave me a headache because, well, I appreciated the fact that Heinlein had some not nice things to say about Rand. Uh, it was, uh, you know, once again, oh, God, he's getting on his soapbox again. <laughs> right. Mm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And um, I did um, find there is a quote from... Uh, uh, Econolib, which is a libertarian website, they did a, an essay about Moon is the Heart's Mistress, and they had a quote, the best ideological bit from the prof is the question that helps him explain libertarianism, in parentheses, rational anarchism, to his friends. Quote, under what circumstances is it moral for a group to do that which is moral for a member of a group to do alone? Uh, a few years from now, it seems to me the libertarianism of the anarchist blend is strongest when it points to the double standard between government agency and the rest of us and perhaps it's weakest when it tries to come up with a more distinct speculation over political order fully compatible with liberty and this guy's name is alberto mingardi and he's a libertarian commentator and that was his take on this so um what were your thoughts, Dave, on on uh, the rational anarchism? Well, I mean, yeah, that's a amusing way to describe it. I mean, yeah, I, I, it, I mean, ultimately, what I've read of De La Paz, and especially considering, again, there's a lot of sort of side references to existing political theory, although not a lot. Um, but it does, to any extent that they like, that they the revolutionaries defer to um, political theory. So we know it seems to be Thomas Jefferson comes up quite a bit. So, and in particular about rational anarchists, he refers, I don't know if, I, I'd have to look at that passage again, because I don't know if he mentions the name, but he mentions that, um, and it might have been also the point where they're writing their Declaration of Independence, where he talks about a piece of rhetoric by one of the greatest rational anarchists that have existed or something like that. And so he's clearly trying to draw on this, um, you know, especially the, the Jeffersonian sort of understanding of, you know, I, I'm assuming the interpretation of Jeffersonianism where you, they attribute the quote, you know, the government that is best is that which governs least um, kind of attitude. And so is that, and I think he says rational because he's saying, no, we can't just get rid of governments. He's still saying like a lot, the classic argument against anarchist thought, right? That people will just go nuts and everything will be crazy and, and you can't stop anyone from doing whatever. And it'll just be antisocial and you know, it'll be anarchy. And so he's saying, you know, he's rational we can't get rid of everything. You're still going to have, for example, in this book, a functioning monetary and banking system. Uh, you're still going to have armed militias and military and things like that. But he's trying to minimize the amount of it. And he's trying to minimize as much as possible. And then he mentions also De La Paz, which honestly, this is something I could appreciate with him. He talks about how he recognizes that, um, you know, he can't get rid of every possible rule or state, but he's going to do what he feels best morally. And I could kind of respect that on a certain level. Cause I mean, I don't know, certainly some of us have lived our lives like that <laughs> at different points. Um, and so that's a, that's an attitude, whether I agree about the particulars, that's an attitude towards, you know, law and the state and the way those intersect with morality and ethics that I actually can appreciate on some level. Um, but yeah, I, you know, fundamentally, it seems like what he's doing, I guess this gets at one of the big points. Um, when I said it, he read some of parts of this read like a, a tyrannical asshole. And then you're also mentioning that some of his Highland stuff famously can get almost fascistic. But then there's a book like this, which is very libertarian. 
but I think it gets at what I feel is sort of like a subtext, which is why you get libertarians and fascists overlapping sometimes. Famously, there's some cases recently, I mean, I'm thinking of the guy Chris Cantwell, who's sometimes called the crying Nazi, um, admittedly a kind of a laughable figure on the far right in the U.S., but he, before becoming a full-on white nationalist neo-Nazi calling for genocide, was actually a libertarian and actually got noticed for that, and a very radical one at that. And I feel like one of the underlying things that is shared is this sense, and it gets also the self-proclaimed rationalism, this sense that you are... You know what's right. You're the rational one. I can figure it out, and I know it's better for myself than anyone else, and for and arguably also for everyone else than they do. Right? He's rational versus all the people who want other forms of government, want maybe a more active state, might question the you know economic system they have, might say that the bomb you know the eventual war they fight that they're being too vicious about it. There is somebody who objects to that at one point, right? Um, those are the irrational people. I'm the smart, rational one, and I should be allowed to do what I want. And that can easily become fascism. I'm the superior person who should be able to impose what I want. In right. fact, uh, in the book, uh, uh, one of the characters actually cites Thomas Jefferson as their model and saying, well, this was this kind of society he was trying to build until they caught him at it. Yeah, <laughs> and, exactly. Uh, you know, definitely I've written in some of my notes that, um, you know, Libertarian act, libertarianism, you know, despite all its pretenses for you know, upholding individual liberty, can very easily develop into fascism for a very simple reason, and that is there are basically two ways a ruling class stays in power: either they repress everything, every every possible dissent, or they buy it off, mm-hmm. give you know the you mm-hmm. know <laughs> give the people below them some privileges, some money, some uh, you know some opportunities, and libertarianism. Uh, and I was thinking, you know, particularly of, of Ayn Rand's libertarianism, cuts off the possibility of buying them off. It says, you know, it is immoral for mm-hmm. the rich to contribute to the welfare of the not rich, and therefore repression is their only option to stay in power. So, you know, a society mm-hmm. that tried to be libertarian would end up as fascist simply because that's the only, you know, way to stay in power that they would consider moral. I mean, I think there's also an argument to be made. This is one of my fundamental problems with right-wing libertarianism um, about what one, what liberty or freedom you're talking about. Because it always seems to me, it's not so strong in this novel, I will say, but um, certainly the case in a lot of arguments I've had with right-wing libertarians, that when it comes push comes to shove, the liberty they're interested in is essentially property and the ability to dispose of your property. And when push comes to shove, you know, this is how you can have self-proclaimed libertarians supporting, say, an Augusto Pinochet who murders thousands of people when he in a military coup. But for them, he imposed, you know, he got rid of a socialist government and imposed, you know, a, a strict free market system. And that was the that's the freedom they want. Now, if you lock up people in a concentration in concentration camps and torture and murder to do that, that's just, you know, you, you're breaking they're breaking the eggs to make the omelet they want to make. Right. And so, but. Uh, you know, and and then that's one of those things that has always really bothered me. That where, what kind of freedom are you actually calling for? And it seems too often the right wing libertarianism is about essentially for the powerful to be able to dispose of their wealth as they ch- choose is the one they're really deeply most concerned about. And, and what's really weird for me in this book is when you you take this is only seven years separated from Starship Troopers, and Starship Troopers is like almost ridiculous to the level of like. 
you know, the state is awesome. You need to, you know, you need to be part <laughs> right. of the, right, be a part of the state. And, you know, you've got to do your service. Like militarism, too, which a lot of libertarians will say they oppose for reasons that often when I agree with right-wing libertarians, it's when they're denouncing war and militarism because they can be very eloquent about it. But then you get people who also get way into Starship Troopers. I do not understand how that works. Right. <laughs> well, it's one of the most militaristic pieces of fiction out there. Right. And I understand that he was reacting to this. He wanted to write something that was against pacifism because he was coming up, you know, mm-hmm. you know, he was seeing this anti-nuclear ad. But then it's just so mind-boggling to me that that, that only seven years separates the writing of these Hugo Award-winning books. And when you're talking yeah. about uh, things, you know, uh, that you could read Starship Troopers, I've, I haven't read it, but I'm familiar with the basic premise. And I did see one of the movies. There were five of them. Uh, <laughs> an original live action and four computer animated sequels. And Casper Van Dien, who starred in the live action version, has continued to voice his character in the computer animated sequels. I don't have much else to do, right? So. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, anyway, um, it struck me that, you know, my, my mother told me when the film Patton came out that, you know, she wouldn't want, you know, society run by people like Patton under normal circumstances, but if we were faced with an invasion by aliens from outer space who are interested only in destroying us, she would want someone like Patton to command the Earth's resistance. <laughs> and I think that was, you know, I think why the people who like Starship Troopers would, uh, you know, would like it that, you know, well, this isn't normal. a normal time. You know, Earth is faced by, you know, giant, giant invaders or giant insects. And they you know, have, you know, and, and you know, you, you can't negotiate with them. They're just out to destroy us and we have to kill them all. And, you know, under those circumstances, uh, you might say that, you know, this is an emergency that requires a militaristic response. Of course, the, you know, the thing is, you know, what does, you know, what do you do after uh, the emergency is over, and the original meaning of the term di- dictator in ancient Rome was someone who assumed absolute power temporarily to meet a foreign invasion, and then once the invasion was mm-hmm. over and uh, the city was secure again, stepped down. Uh, and you know, my favorite piece of writing by Robert Heinlein was his 1940 short story called Solution Unsatisfactory in which he basically said that the threat of nuclear weapons was going to be so enormous that the only way humanity could deal with it is a benevolent dictator ruling the entire world. And nobody really liked that, including the benevolent dictator. <laughs> but, you know, that's that's the best piece of writing I've ever read from Heinlein, the one that most impressed me because, you know, whatever I think of the point, because it was a short story, he had to nail it in a very... Small amount of literary mm-hmm. space and didn't, you know, didn't, <laughs> didn't have go up on his rants like in here. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right. Well, you know, it, it's interesting because I think a lot of, obviously during the 40s and 50s, the post, the nuclear war aspect hung over all of science fiction and, you know, to, you know, varying different results and, you know, weirdly enough, I think one of the best anarchist science fiction novels was written by L. Ron Hubbard in 1939, uh, mm-hmm. The Final Blackout, uh, which was really early, but way before like he lost his mind and started doing Scientology. 
or uh, found or found, found his, his profit niche and started doing Scientology. Since there is that story, there is there is that story of him telling a, his fellow science fiction writers in 1938. You know, if you really want to make a million dollars, the thing to do is start your own religion. Right. Mm-hmm. And you know, one of the people that did early say, um, "Dude, Ron's nuts," was Robert Heinlein. Was one of the people mm-hmm. who early on. So we'll give him credit for that. Um, so we can come back to the libertarian thing when we're um, talking about our final thoughts, but I did want to talk about some other aspects of lunar society. Um, I think there's a policy proposal in the book um, that they come up with a system where uh, laws can be repealed. The legislative assembly needs two-thirds of the majority to pass a law, but the repealing assembly only has to get 51%. And I, the libertarians love that part of this book. I think it doesn't make any sense because it shouldn't be a higher threshold to um, to maintain the laws than to pass it. I don't know. Right. Well, that's actually still the you know actually the case in uh, uh, certain aspects of Congress that you know it uh, it only takes a simple majority of Congress to uh, cut taxes, but it takes at least sixty votes in the Senate to raise them. Right. So. In a, in a sense, we have something like that now, right? And 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 for the right wing libertarian thing, I guess this is getting another thing, and it's often the difference between right wing and left wing libertarians, right? Like left wing libertarianism, which is say anarchism, right? And where the word libertarian came from, you know, French writers who were not allowed to write anarchist in, ni- in the nineteenth century, so they started calling themselves libertarians. Um, they were, and that's, and also like I studied Latin America, a lot of them will call themselves libertarios, right? Um, and uh but anyway that argument the right wing libertarians so so okay the left wing libertarianism was a call for social revolution they opposed the state but they also opposed capitalist class relations right you know colonial entanglement colonial empires and colonies war um whereas the right wing libertarians it's very much you know you're not calling for social revolution far from it they're just wanting the state to back off to allow sort of economic and social forces to play out. And that's why you can get like right-wing libertarians who oppose civil rights legislation. Cause to them, that's forcing people to run their businesses in ways they don't choose to. Right. Um, and, uh, and, and that's kind of, so this Congress that he proposes is absolutely in line with that. Right. The point is to restrict the state and what it can do and to make it as hard as possible for the state to expand, you know? All right. So, and- and and also, by the way, that also means that you can't use the power of the state to challenge um, social or economic relations, right? It becomes much, much harder to do that. Yeah. So things like passing um, marriage... Labor law. Yeah, labor yeah. laws or marriage equality, that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. It would uh, be much harder. Now, speaking of marriage, uh, marriage is really weird on the moon. Um <laughs> <laughs> And uh, we we know that in his own life, the Heinlein was married. His wife, Virginia, lived long after him. But uh, for all intents and purposes, uh, we know he was all about that polyamory. Uh, <laughs> and in his, you know, we saw before polyamory was a huge part of Stranger in a Strange Land. It was almost ridiculous. In Stranger in a Strange Land, as it is in this book, but because, and I know you were saying, Mark, before we started recording, that you really wanted to know 
um, how much of that was just him, like, writing, like, hey, I like polyamory, so I'm going to write all about it. Mm-hmm. And whether that was a fantasy or was it something that he was living in his life, I believe it it was not to the level that it was in his fiction, <laughs> right? But I do yeah. believe that um, he and Virginia had that type of open relationship. I think he was oh. actually dating her while he was still married to wife number one. Right. Mm-hmm. Which um, I've, I've actually had some friends who are in long-term, stable, polyamorous relationships, and it's not this... It's not what you see here, but it's also not dissimilar, right? Where, where, especially when you've got a committed couple, like I have a, I have a good friend, a couple of good friends, or several, who are a polyamorous <laughs> group. Uh, and, um, I'm pretty glad I'm closest with the, the, the wife. That's one wife and a few of her lovers. And so she's married to one of the guys legally, and then there are other folks who live with them. And, but it's a shared family unit. Um, and, and everybody sort of consents to live that way. And so it's clear, I got that sense of that's kind of what's going on here, but it's more formal, right? Because these families persist and and continue on after, long after, you know, even maybe the original people that married into it. And also because, well, I don't know, they don't even have a legal system. So everybody does actually marry versus folks who might have polyamorous open relationships. Now you can't marry, uh, legally marry multiple people, right? Right. Well, I know in this situation, the reason why that it supposedly happens on the moon is that they have a lot more dudes than yeah. uh, ladies, which uh, Heinlein, uh, hello, <laughs> <laughs> that doesn't mean that we're going to have, mm-hmm. you know, just these kinds of relationships. And then we get to the problem that we have had. Well, he's, he's, that, that gets at something I will say that I think is one of the biggest shortcomings going on in here. And with, again, one of my problems with another problem I have with a lot of right wing libertarian thinking is um, he's, he's, he's clearly drawing this idea from an abstract understanding of supply and demand. Right. Right. There's a, and, and so there's so much demand for women in a limited supply. And that means the women can sort of set their price and how that plays out socially is that you can have these huge amorphous polyamorous groups and the women get to call the shots within them more or less, or not call the shots, but call a lot of the shots and certainly can draw very firm lines with people stepping over their boundaries. But like, and what about, um, well, what about practice? that's not necessarily how the world works. Right. I mean, and we know this through history, right? Like what does this stop? You know, they're being so, you know, I, I, one of the things that biggest problems I have with this, they have this peaceful libertarian society. I still don't understand why are there not gangs? Why are there not warlords? Why are there not people viciously enforcing on each other? And he doesn't really explain that ever. Well, um, for me, then I don't know, you know, so it's just sort of a weird, yeah. Yeah. For me, two of the things that uh, are really missing from this is, uh, you know, why doesn't uh, Luna have a pride? Parade. Uh, oh yeah, that's a big one. Oh my god, yeah, you're right. Oh my god. Yeah. Um, for example, like he never s- saw this potentiality, and this was a huge problem with Stranger in a Strange Land, which we went mm-hmm. to in great length in our episode. Was that he definitely he had a line in Stranger in a Strange Land where he's like, "Whoa, whoa, this is why we don't have gay people," right? Well, he actually, I think he does talk about it here, right, where he says that like. Men will have sex with each other, but it's purely uh, in prison. He he compares it to prisons, <laughs> right? Right. And that apparently they worked. And so to him, like 
homosexuality is purely a deviation that happens in certain circumstances. And at this point, they've worked out a social system where you don't need that anymore, where like men are okay with all being married to, you know, being multiple husbands with a smaller number of wives, right? And so therefore, they don't need to be gay, which is uh, absurd. But like, yeah. <laughs> well, equally absurd is on uh, page one thirty-one of the version that I have. There's a part where he says, "Stu, there's no rape in Luna. None. Men wouldn't permit it, um, right? Because yeah. he's this idea that he's like because in this marriage unit where it's this this awesome like business relationship that they the that they have, uh, the men care so much about." the minority women that are in the society that they would never let that happen. And it's like, yeah, dude, that sounds awesome. And I really wish that was the case. But, you know, it's just, it's absurd. It's an absurd well, part of this. And, and when you were talking about like there's no people, gay. It seems like he's assuming people just would abandon any cultural baggage they had as soon as they got exiled to the moon. Yeah, I think some of the sexual politics in here is some of the most offensive parts of the book as far as the things that just are totally out of date and just didn't work. I'm assuming you had lots of thoughts on that, Mark. Um, I was, once again, it was Heinlein getting on his soapbox and, uh, you know, trying to make a, you know, a big deal out of, okay, there are so many men, so few women, and, you know, the Lunar Society has to reproduce. Uh, has to have some way of doing that, and um, so you know it was it was sort of like you know it was presented as their adaptation to their particular conditions, but you know it you know it it didn't bother me as much as the polyamory and stranger did, uh, but uh, you know it just sort of like you know okay. Uh, I'm willing for the sake of this book to accept that this is the way his people work, even if it's, you know, not, you know, mm -hmm. not the way anybody I know works or anybody I've interviewed. I did an interview with a woman who uh, lived a polyamorous lifestyle. And uh, what struck me was it sounded like the principle of consensus decision making applied to relationships. Yeah. And, you know, you know what, what some of your uh, your friends experience, you know, as you were yeah. uh, narrating. That's exactly right. Yeah, it's like, oh, my God, it's, you know, it, it's hard enough to keep a relationship together with just two people, let alone. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's definitely the sense I've gotten from my friend's family, too. It's a lot of work. Yeah, and, I, and I've had friends that were in poly relationships that worked, and I had... I've seen disastrous poly relationships and... Oh, believe me, I've seen those too, yeah. Yeah, um, it, it definitely I've seen, especially in situations where there's... Uh, I, I saw a situation where where there was a relationship with one one man and two women and one ended up kind of playing the mom role and, 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 and mm -hmm. just those kinds of things just naturally could sometimes happen in these relationships. And I, I, I when I saw... In this book, it was like the idea that it was just like, hey, it's all hunky-dory. It all goes perfect. And it's just, you know, like you said, it's like there's no cultural baggage to any of this. And I think Heinlein wasn't really exploring that. And I think Josh Wimmer, who's the guy who blogs about the Hugos for io9, his main problem with um, Moon is the Heart's Mistress is he said, Heinlein is great at outlining political theories. But he more or less ignored the problems of applying those theories in the real world. His violence is always justifiable and nearly bloodless 
His character's logic is always presented as infallible. Yes. Yeah. Well, that was the point I was getting at earlier, where it seems like it's just, you've got your central cell who, to the extent any of them is ever wrong, it's just because they don't understand things fully, and they get it explained by someone else in the cell to them. And then anybody who opposes them is just an idiot or a busybody or whatever, you know? <laughs> and, and it's just sort of a series of straw men being shoved aside, brushed aside, so they can continue their important work. <laughs> right. Yeah, it's all the the thing we were discussing earlier about it maintains the appearance of democracy and inclusiveness, but it's really a handful of people running everything. And, you know, Heinlein comes close to the classic argument that uh, Mussolini and Hitler made and their apologists did of, you know, all the great ideas in human history have come from the mind of one individual. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, you know, he's, you know, he's creating this libertarian universe and he's either deliberately articulating or I think more likely just stumbling on the ideology of fascism. Right. Well, look, and there are authors who explore political ideas and speculative fiction so much better um, than mm-hmm. Heinlein. And, and just um, if you look at uh, The Dispossessed by Ursula Le Guin, for example, which is mm-hmm. a far better anarchist sci-fi novel, um, Norman Spinrad's uh, spacefaring uh, duology uh, with the Void Captain's Tale it has an anarchist um, like Galactic Federation kind of thing and is very is very well um, is very syndicalist in its ideas and does very well uh, and I think specifically John Bruner does a, does a lot with this in his work and his uh, he has a book called The Crucible of Time which is like almost like a completely banana sci-fi book about an underwater alien culture that is almost so weird it's hard to read but when you boil it down like <laughs> The political culture in it is, is really fascinating and interesting. And then when you see Heinlein is known for, he's like, oh, he writes this great political science fiction. Well, it's so on the surface because he doesn't get into how things, he, he just doesn't get into how these things affect these people. I, I think it's impossible, it's impossible to not bring the baggage of what came before to this book as well. You can't ignore Starship Troopers. You can't, you know, they are part of his DNA, um, you know, Stranger in a Strange Land. And it is odd. And, you know, writers are allowed to have different thoughts and think different ways and change and evolve. And I prefer what he's thinking about here (laughs) than he was in Starship Troopers. But it's just... It's impossible for me to ignore that that part of his DNA. Um, I know you have a lot of notes, Mark. Is there anything that that you before we get into final thoughts and uh, movie treatments and stuff? Um, do you have any other things that we've missed of the major themes? Yeah. Well, one thing I noticed is that in a sense, the moon is a harsh mistress is kind of a science fiction western. And one mm-hmm. of the things that Heinlein says mm-hmm. is, you know. He says that, you know, if if you're on the moon and you want to kill somebody, you either, you know, figure out a way to get them to the lunar surface without a spacesuit, or lock them in a room and then let out all the air. And that, you know, the moon really doesn't need any more of a system of justice than that. Right. And, mm-hmm. you know, this, you know, the sort of fantasy we had of the Pioneer West, uh, Heinlein seems to be endorsing and uh, yeah. regarding as morally superior to you know, uh, an actual 
rule of a nation based on laws and all of the bureaucracy needed to enforce them. This is a theme that we have dealt with many times here on Dickheads because uh, the frontier, when you read the first 10 years of PKD's career, in the beginning, the frontier is this is always the magical ending. We're going to fly off in our spaceship to the wonderful frontier. <laughs> and then by uh, Martian time slip and Three Stigmata, you're tripping balls just to survive on the, on the frontier because it sucks so bad that you need Choosy and Candy just to fucking survive. And the relationship with the frontier and PKD changed so drastically over from the 50s to the mid-60s. It's hilarious just to see how much the frontier changed. But um, I'm sorry I cut you off, Dave. No, no, that's fine. And, and I did. I caught the same Western vibe from this. Not necessarily that it reads like a Western, but the exactly that this is a frontier society and he's clearly trying to model it off of a kind of mythical mythical understanding of early us early us state formation um but i say it's also mythical because i mean and this is maybe coming from studying history recently and working in history currently it's it it is a entirely um it's just such, so abstracted and strange and so far from the actual truth of things, right? So it's this under, this seeming idea that, you know, these people are living on this harsh frontier trying to survive and it enforces certain kinds of social and cultural norms that produce a kind of, like, peace and politeness. Like you said, they they will kill each other, but they don't most of the time because they're all in this harsh situation. And also because the society will, you know, if you become known as a person who kills people with bad reasons you'll get in trouble yourself, right? Um, but, like, uh, you know, you also early on you compared it to Australia, and I guess it sort of gets at, you know, recently a lot of historians of, um, especially the Anglo-American settler world, have really started talking about the concept of settler colonialism, and in particular, the, the particular way that colonialism has worked in North America, Australia, South Africa, and some people apply the term in Israel currently as well. Um, but the idea of you know, you have these societies and states that are founded around um, influxes of settler colonists from other parts of the world and to territories that are that are described and treated as if they're empty, regardless of any sort of fact to them, and that that ends up shaping so many elements of how they function, and in particular, the racial relations, right? Um, and so, you know, it, it just... It, it's I'm. I, it's almost a whole other couple hours to even start digging into this, but it's sort of like it's convenient they're founding their frontier in the moon, so they don't have to worry about genocide against an indigenous population or the ways that might produce sort of racial caste systems, um, right? None of that is... He can just sort of hand wave that away uh, and not deal with the sort of actual lived human histories of, you know, class and exploitation, Right, these people really are doing a sui generis society up on the moon, and we don't have to worry about any of that stuff. And certainly, a lot of the you know the settlers moving west in the U.S. thought of themselves as doing that, but they were that path was cleared for them by an incredibly militarized and powerful state that was wiping out the people who lived there before them. Right? Um, I don't know. It was just one of those things that constantly was in my head that this is so tied up with these settled or colonial mythologies of what frontiers are and settlement and pioneer life. Um, that uh, it was just, it was a weird cognitive dissonance the entire time when any of that kind of stuff came up. Yeah. I know he had a book in 1953 called revolt in 2100 that um, 
I think that one dealt with the colonization stuff and and genocide mm-hmm. to a degree, and I'm I'm sure it was very forward thinking. Uh, <laughs> oh god, yeah. In 1953, Heinlein. Um, Heinlein did. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, I just looked it up because I I haven't read that one, but it's it's on my shelf. However, this experience reading Heinlein for the Hugos has really um, almost pushed those unread Heinlein books to the uh, free library shelf <laughs> <laughs> um, in uh, um, uh, the free bookshelf uh, in my room because I, I just I I'm just not sure uh, I'm sold that I need to spend time reading more Heinlein, but I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit. Um, but yeah, I think. I think you bring up a really interesting point about how convenient it is that the moon just doesn't come with the weight and the baggage that a lot of these stories do. Right. I, I don't. I said earlier it could be on an on, a, on an island anywhere. Yes, and and as much as it's written as if it's the memoir of you know someone recanting a history, and it's written to be a history, admittedly a partial one told in first person, like partial as in coming from someone's point of view. Um, it is a world that is very conveniently without history, right? So again, you don't have to think about questions of settler colonialism, of class, of stratification or exploitation, any of that. It's just they started this place. Uh, it's fresh and it's new and it's different, and they want to be a separate from the earth. And in fact, the way they contrast with the life on earth, which is not described a lot, but generally made to sound awful and miserable, is in part that earth has too much baggage, Right. Whereas the moon, we're done. History doesn't matter. History doesn't exist. We can do what we want, right? Including that's why they don't have racism, because there's no need for it. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Yep. Yeah, we don't need it here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they they kind of need it on Earth. Is, is Whatever. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that's one of those cringy parts. Um, but, uh, so, coming from a perspective, a historian's perspective, it, it's obvious uh, I know you're ner- you don't don't necessarily like the title historian, Dave, Dave but you to me are a historian. Um, I, I it's obvious he's trying to pattern this off the American Revolution, the Thomas Jefferson mm-hmm. thing. But do you see any other parallels to any other resistance movements that are maybe not so obvious or, or oh, yeah. revolutions? It's very clear to me. Uh, well, yeah, American Revolution is obvious, and also that's another one, by the way. I mean, they they sort of half mentioned that they're cribbing the Declaration of Independence. If you actually read it, a huge amount of the grievances laid out there are that the British are stopping them from taking more land from indigenous people than they wanted. Um, but anyway, uh, so that's you know, it's an interesting uh, sort of elision in, elision in talking about this. But um, no, there's definitely some of those. I mean, when he's talking about the cell structure, I mean, that's every resistance movement you know that that that's basic doctrine i mean i remember reading about you know reading these pamphlets from latin american revolutionaries or you know carlos Marighella or whatever from brazil who helped organize resistance against their military dictatorship as this communist who organized guerrilla units to fight their military dictatorship in the 60s you know and he's talking about cell structures or like you know famously um the uh um the FLN in Algeria in the 50s and 60s, and you know he was aware of, of the anti-colonial movements, of the contemporary anti-colonial movements. I don't know how sympathetic he was, but I bet he read some of the you know work that was out there, and there was a lot of it Franz Fana, circulating no. literature about the tactics of guerrilla warfare and resistance, right? Che Guevara, writings from FLN people, from, you know, Regis Debray, 
um, maybe Marighella, well, Marighella was after this, but still, um, it was out there and it was discussed and people were aware of it. And the way they describe like their resistance cells and the structure they use, admittedly, he adds this element where they're able to use the computer to make even more complex structures of communication and hierarchy within the movement that are even harder to break. But that basic idea is just 101 for like clandestine resistance movements. And also some of the discussion, I mean, I do, this is a whole other world and I'm not an economist, but I do have some issues with some of the discussion of the economic questions that they go into in this, which is a huge part of the revolutionary strategy and tactics as well. But they are dealing with real issues of post-colonial social and economic restructuring after an anti-colonial revolution. And he, he deals with them in sort of pretty interesting ways. I actually, I, do think there's major flaws and all that, and I don't know if we have time to even dig into that, but you know, when they're when they're having to deal with this question of how they use their economic power with the uh to as part of the tactics, they're you know, the whole thing is they fight this revolution by dropping huge meteorites on Earth from the moon. But um also part of it is that they stop shipping the grain that certain parts of the earth really rely on that is grown on the moon. And uh the fact that they have to play on, you know, that's a powerful tactic they can use, but it also pisses off people on the moon themselves who actually have to survive by selling that grain, right? Um, those are interesting questions, and that's actual stuff that does undermine these kind of struggles, right? The, and, and that's getting at something like class division or, or sectoral, at least sectoral differences between different industries and things that really do pop up in these kind of situations, but he just sort of barely touches on it, and again, it's all very in a very sort of high-handed technocratic way where the people who object are just sort of stupid and can be brushed aside, you know? Yeah, well, you know, it, it is interesting because the, the I, those are, there are moments there where he does kind of show the revolution not being perfect to the people who mm-hmm. are running it. But again, that's small potatoes compared to what I think the novel could have really used as far yeah. as... Uh, you're but, show, showing showing that that there could be cracks in the in, in the mm-hmm. system. Hey, and I will say, I did ref, I did like that he did reference like actual union songs, and there was a reference to Pie in the Sky, for example. Yeah, exactly. As much as this is a very much an American right wing libertarian text, he's drawing on elements of revolutionary traditions all over the map. There's the Marseillaise, there's the Internationale, there's you know like everybody, and the people are all calling each other comrade. But it's comrade, and you're—I mean—it's the reason why communists started using comrades. The classic sense: they're comrades in struggle. You know, um, at the other on the other hand, his absolute contempt for the idea of building power in solidarity, which is early on when he basically tells Wyoming, "Not you're full of it." Um, clearly very different from sort of left social movement thinking at, at the most basic level possible. Um, yeah, and it's too bad yeah. that he couldn't embed himself in an actual moon revolution like Hemingway, you know, or Orwell <laughs> <laughs> to, uh, <laughs> to have more of a realistic real life moon revolutions that we feel <laughs> <laughs> like. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, all right. So, um, what, uh, before we get into the final review, there was, in 2015, uh, there was a film adaptation announced by 20th Century Fox that was announced to be directed, called Uprising, that was based on Moon is Heart's Mistress, that was going to be directed by Brian Singer, who, 
of course, has mm. fallen out of favor with pretty much everyone in Hollywood. And so that did not happen. Uh, but at the time, Brian Singer was attaching himself to a bunch of old school sci-fi projects, including Logan's Run and um, a, strangely a reboot of Battlestar Galactica because we need that already. A reboot of <laughs> the reboot. The reboot of the reboot less than 10 years after the last reboot. Um, but he then um, famously got caught for having all kinds of ridiculously bad pool parties all over Hollywood that had lots of... Oh my god, speaking of which, we didn't even get into the weird, weird, like... Borderline pedophilia in this book. Oh, yeah. Well, that <laughs> oh may be why God, Brian Singer was attached up. to direct the film. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Unfortunately, um, yeah. I can be snarky very much fits with uh, contemporary internet libertarians, but we'll, then we can leave that aside. Um. <laughs> but, uh, uh, whoa. Well, okay. Um, yeah, so that I think we all agree that it's probably a good thing that this 2015 Brian Singer uprising movie didn't happen. Does anybody have any thoughts or ideas of, I, I, I wouldn't want to see this as a movie personally, like, cause usually what we talk about it in this part of the show is how we would do it as a movie. But honestly, I got no interest. I, it's too, it's, it, well, it could be a really awful didactic movie. I'd imagine a Brian Singer or Hollywood adaptation would end up reducing the few things I find really interesting and then get, adding a really sappy, melodramatic like story onto it that does not exist here. Um, maybe somebody who knew how to write actual characters could adapt it into like a prestige drama of some sort, you know, like you know, get Amazon or Netflix to do ten episodes if you had people who could actually make these into real characters and give some depth and spend time in depth you know um but this is just yeah this is this is a a, i don't know cranky middle-aged guy's thought experiment i'm not sure i want to see that made into a movie um all right so we gotta wrap this up because we have gone really long but it's been very good discussion and i really enjoyed myself uh i think this is going to be one of the best episodes of the series even though the book it's probably uh, one of the worst books. Um, it's interesting because I went back and forth on my ratings. So originally I gave this book um, two out of five uh, Revolutionary Cell members. Um, but then I kind of took it up to three out of three um, Revolutionary Cell members. However, three out of five, excuse me, because my, my thought was that... I, I had fun, even though I disagreed with a lot of the book, I enjoyed reading it, and I it stimulated my thinking enough, even when I was like, this is kind of bullshit, um, enough that I had a three-star experience, but it's a two-star book. Does that make sense? That makes so, a good deal of sense, and one of the ironies that I noted, and I you know, actually researched this online before coming here, was that... Uh, you know, just two years after publishing this novel about a successful colonial revolution against an imperialist power, Robert Heinlein signed the petition in favor of the Vietnam War and thereby endorsed oh. the imperial mm-hmm. power against the uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> anti-colonial revolution. So, um, ouch! You know, the, Ouch. You know, it's a fascinating 
it's a fascinating clip. I'll, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll leave you this day. It's kind of, you know, an interesting <laughs> slice of history. I remember it being recorded in the early 70s that there were clashing uh, petitions at science fiction conventions uh, for and against the Vietnam War. And, you know, the, the one against it, uh, mm. you know, got a handful more signatures than the one for it. Both of them were published. Uh, mm. And uh, it says here that uh, Ackerman, Asimov, James Blish, Ray Bradbury, Samuel Delaney, Lester Del Rey, Philip K. Dick, Harlan Ellison, Philip Jose Farmer, Daniel Keyes, Damon Knight, Ursula Le Guin, Fritz Lieber, uh, Judith Merrill, Gene Roddenberry, Robert Silverberg, Kay Wilhelm, Don Wilhelm, and Harry Harrison all signed the anti-Vietnam War petition. Hmm. So, good on y'all. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, you know, um, wow. This is, whew, this is, yeah, it's not surprising. I mean, he wrote fucking Starship Troopers. Yeah. Um, so, you know, but, and how I would rate this book is sort of like which part of it, because not only is it divided into three books, but the three books are three books. There are, you know, mm -hmm. you know, there's the, you know, there's the, you know, wonderful rabble rousing, you know, organizing, uh, the, you know, colonial revolution for all the right reasons part. And then there's the, uh, well, we're really setting up a dictatorship part. And there's the, uh, you know, it's like, what part? <laughs> right. Uh, you know, you make the you make the anti-imperialist points, and then you become your own, uh, you become your own tyranny, and that's mm -hmm. supposed to be a good thing because the masses really don't know how to lead themselves. So, uh, overall, do you have a story? Right. It's not the tragedy of a revolution becoming a dictatorship. It's more like, no, this is the right thing to do. <laughs> do you have a star rating, Mark? Uh, I, I'd say two is about right. <laughs> Dave, do you have a, a final rating on, or final thoughts on Moon is the Heart's Mistress? Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a rough one. I'm going back and forth between two and two and a half stars. Um, and it's mostly, my, my rating is going to be about stylistic issues, although it does relate to the ideas. And part of it is because it's a book that's solely about the ideas and it handles the ideas in such a um, blunt and unsophisticated way that uh, it, it's really didactic and really sim simple, honestly. Um, you know, if you like it, it probably seems really brilliant. If you don't, it's incredibly frustrating. Uh, it, it certainly was for me just because, and if nothing else, okay, so my two stars is about, uh, I can't go too much lower than that because I uh, didn't hate reading it, right? It reads quickly. It's well-paced. I mean, it's at almost 400 pages in the edition I had, I had, um, and it, I didn't dread or slow down or go, Oh God, I gotta go back to this thing. Um, like I do with some books. Right. Yeah. And so I got to give them credit for that. On the other hand, the things I've been saying all along, I mean, the characters are one dimensional as all get out. Um, it's all just this very kind of bloodless, abstracted, like, you know, kind of discussion of this. And, and like I said, it, it, and nobody has a real personality and the the culture and the world that they live in just never feels fleshed out. It's all this kind of like dismissive attitude of an arrogant jerk who thinks he's smarter than everybody. And that's not really fun to read and it doesn't make for an interesting, compelling story. Um, you could have these same ideas and this same argument. And if it was written by somebody who could actually, you know, cared about 
creating fleshed out full three-dimensional characters, I probably would have given this like three, three and a half stars, maybe even four, right? But as it is, it's just so corny and simple. I couldn't, I, I've, I found myself getting frustrated with it all along at the same time as I didn't really have any trouble getting through it or, you know, even kind of look forward to it sometimes. But I would say for me, um, uh, Starship Troopers was a better read, even though politically it's the fucking worst. Um, but I would say it was the best written of them because I, I think the characters were more fleshed out and I actually enjoyed the story of that one best of the three that I read. And I would say ranking the three Hugo ones, um, and I'm spoiling when I rank all of them all together, but for Heinlein, I would say Starship Troopers was the best of the three. Uh, Stranger, or, uh, Moon's Heart's Mistress was next, and Stranger and Strange Land is straight garbage, um, <laughs> in my opinion. And, uh, but yeah, so in, in the end, I would say, yeah, two star book, three star experience, but that's partially because I, I knew I was gonna have a fun discussion with Mark and Dave. Okay. So, um, <laughs> But anyways, uh, any final thoughts before we wrap this up? This is, this is a long one, but we, I think this, that's one of the, one of the few things that's really cool about the book is there is a lot to talk about. There's, mm-hmm. there's a lot of ideas and, and in the end, that's the best thing we can hope for with science fiction is, is to have lots of really good ideas that, mm-hmm. you know, even if they're not fleshed out terribly well and even if they're not, Wedded to a story with interesting characters. <laughs> so, uh, all right, dickheads. I hope you enjoyed this long episode. If you made it this far, you're a trooper. Um, and I appreciate your time. Uh, keep it paranoid. Yeah.